0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome to IMC. And uh, I'm going to continue this journey on the mindfulness journey, uh, going through the uh, ancient text called the Discourse, usually called the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the kind of taken to be the source text for uh, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness and some of the secular forms of mindfulness nowadays also will trace themselves back to this text so it has at least a symbolic uh, value of being kind of the origin for it all and uh, it's a very important text uh, in Buddhist meditation practice because it lays out a variety of ways that mindfulness practice can unfold or how to do it. And one of the remarkable things about uh, I see more and more as I read this text um, whether it's there or not I'm not completely sure but uh, you see um, it's laid out with, this, uh, with the idea of movement that there's a movement going on of practice uh, unfolding a development and, of uh, evolution of practice and I like the metaphor of deep so it kind of goes deeper and deeper as we go through it. And um, and it begins with uh, this statement that um, in my mind also it begins by kind of evoking the idea of movement. Um, in this translation it says, uh, there is the direct path, there is the direct way, there is a direct vehicle. That, uh, so this idea that there is this path to walk and to, to sort of direct, it goes someplace directly. And so there's movement along a path. And uh, in a variety of different ways, what you see appearing in the text uh, reinforces the idea. Reinforces the idea that uh, meditation is not a, a static, unchanging thing, but um, there is a deepening, a growing, uh, uh, a movement of insight, of understanding, of mind states that change as meditation deepens. And, you know, and most people associate that with meditation. That meditation is something that you start with your uh, everyday mind maybe agitated everyday mind and as you meditate you get quieter and quieter or more and more concentrated or calmer and calmer or or uh, the mind becomes clearer and clearer so this idea of movement that goes on and um and uh important in this text is the movement of insight to see uh and to see in progressively deeper way or clearer ways and um uh so as we've gone through this text, we now come to the, uh, uh, the third of the four foundation, third of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is uh, that of the mind. The chitta is the word, and um, and some people will translate chitta as heart. Uh, it's uh, um, there's some idea that uh, in places like Thailand, uh, they in Burma, that uh, what we would call the mind and we point to our brain, uh in those countries uh they would call the heart and they point to the chest. So that's the place where the mental operation is uh, are operating. So um so anyway, maybe it doesn't matter that much except that the heart feels a little more embodied. That's kinda of nice the idea that that's where the center of operations are is. But um sometimes I get that feeling, but my center of operation is higher than that. <laughs> I think that I have a strong identification or recognition or in, the, in the head, maybe because of the acculturation of many decades in the West. But uh, in any case, uh, the, the third foundation is the foundation where we turn and look at the citta, and sometimes it's translated as mind, as I said. Um, to understand this a little bit easier, it might be uh, better to understand it as mind state, the state of the mind. And our, our mind state can change over time. It can be agitated, it can be calm, it can be um, angry or it can be peaceful and happy. It can be uh, greedy and uh, you know, filled with, you know, and the state is that not like a momentary moment of anger or greed, but the whole kind of fa- fabric or texture or the, the atmosphere of the mind can be very strongly influenced by uh, uh, different dispositions, different ways of being and um and you take a deep look at your mind state and you say wow you know i was really grumpy all day it's just like nothing worked it was i was aversive and it was just an aversive state you know just whatever i saw i saw through this, through this aversive atmosphere of my mind or it could be a uh, love you know some people um you know have the occasion to um fall head or heels in love with something someone and um and everything the person does is just fantastic. You know, It's just everything's seen through that filth, that mind state of of infatuation, perhaps, or something. So the general mind state of the mind. And the mind state is a little, a little bit more uh, stable than a particular uh, moment of anger or particular, you know, someone says something nice and we feel happy for a moment. So it's not just a, not a particular um, you know, activity of the mind. It's more like the mood that the mind is in than the particular activity. And uh, and so here we're turning the attention to notice uh, the mind state. And uh, and one of the uh, uh, salient features of this uh, way of knowing the mind state is it it simply says to uh, to know or to understand. Um, it doesn't say to Uh, understand or recognize the mind state and judge it. It doesn't say to recognize what it is and if it's undesirable, push it away and get rid of it. It just says just to know it. Just recognize it's there. And uh, for people who do mindfulness practice, at some point uh, there's kind of an aha moment that can happen where it becomes quite remarkable to appreciate the power of simple recognition. That just to see something for what it is. I think of it as being very respectful uh, because when you see something, you're not interfering with it directly. You're not trying to make it go away. You're not judging it as being bad or good. It's just clearly seeing this is what it is. When I was uh, first introduced to this practice um, in, in Thailand, I um, uh, was given a little meditation hut in the edge of the swamp Uh, In the edge of the monastery. And um, I I had to go across it on these... They had planks of wood across the swamp, and I had to walk across the planks to get little steps going up to my little hut on stilts. One room, probably, I don't know, eight by eight, or maybe a little bit, ten by ten, I don't know how big it was. And I was sent out there to meditate. And uh, meditate all day by yourself. And then every day I go see the abbot. For an interview, and he'd give me more instructions and send me back to my little cabin in the swamp, and you know, I would do my wa- sitting and walking there. There was a right near the in the swamp, kind of, but kind of to the next side of the cabin I had. The hut was um, a grave, and uh, that was kind of cement thing that was above the kind of swamp. So I would go do my walking meditation there, back and forth, because that was the place, the closest place to do it. And then I'd go back and meditate in the little. So it was kind of cozy,
1: and
0: and, um, and uh, so I was, you know, and so I was doing my meditation every day, and uh, and one day I don't know why, but um, I, I decided to go for a little walk around the monastery, which meant I wasn't meditating. And being a, having been a good Zen student, you know, you follow the schedule, and I was told to all day to sit and walk, so sitting meditation, walking meditation, all day, all day with a schedule. That's what you do, you know, all day. And, um, so, um, but for some reason I decided to go for a little walk around the monastery. And, um, and, um, lo and behold, who should be walking around the monastery at the same time but the abbot. And my feeling was, I'm busted. (laughs) I'm supposed to be meditating and serious and go doing it in here. I'm walking, you know, being a goof, goof off, goofing off and walking around the monastery. And, um and um, but uh, so we kind of walked 90 degrees to each other so like he was walking 90 degrees to me and uh, as I was walking towards him and um, and so he just walked by but as he walked by uh, I was maybe 20, 30 feet away uh, he turned and looked at me and it was really clear that he saw me there was no doubt about it I really felt seen at the same time as being seen I felt like he saw right not through me like he saw what was going on inside, but like I was transparent, he was seeing through me to the other side of me. Somehow, you know, just that was the kind of feeling. But uh, what, what struck me was that he was just seeing me. And there was no flicker of, what is this foreigner doing here, you know, walking around the monastery, you should be meditating, and he's not, no longer doing the schedule, and he's goofing off, or... <clears throat> there, was no, there was no kind of... You know, I felt seen but not judged, not criticized, not categorized. I just, I felt like I'd never been seen by anybody like that before. And um, and it was kind of liberating. It certainly liberated me from, and made me very aware of all the self-consciousness I had. You know, being right and wrong, and how I was gonna be seen. and And it was kind of an important moment to do that. But this idea of just being seen, just being recognized. Oh, this is what's there. And that we can do the same thing for our mind. Uh, And I talk to people, a lot of people, about their minds. And it's amazing amount of people who have a difficult time with their minds. And uh, they're angry with it, they're critical of it, they feel like somehow it's flawed, there's something wrong with them. And so they don't just see what's in their mind, they see what's what's wrong in their mind. This is wrong, that's wrong, I'm doing it wrong, and all that. But to be able to kind of see what goes on in the mind, and see it with that same kind of clarity of really seeing it, the habitat, but without any judgment, without being right or wrong or for or against, is a remarkable thing to do. It's a, It can be a very healing because it allows what's in there to unfold in its own way. And I've learned through all these decades of doing this practice that there's a kind of a self-healing momentum, or sometimes I call it a self-liberating momentum of what's in us, that if we just get out of the way well enough, but recognize it, we have to see it. We can't just kind of go off in, you know, daydreams. So we have to really be present. But if we get out of the way, and don't limit anything, don't inhibit anything, uh, don't push it away, don't try to hold on to it, don't try to reinforce it, if it's good. Just really see it. It seems to kind of like, it's kind of like uh, giving it breathing room so it can unfold and evolve. Uh, and that's true for you in know, many mind states uh, this morning i went for a hike up in the hills here and uh, um i had the occasion to be angry and as uh, so i was doing that my walk and um <clears throat> so i said okay well, that's what's happening today and uh, <laughs> so i said okay let's go." i guess this is a good place to be angry and i just went along for the ride and and uh, made room for it and didn't have any idea that it shouldn't be there or I was supposed to work on it and get rid of it or you know or that I'm a mindfulness teacher I should not be angry <laughs> you know all these things I just kind of okay this is what's going on and I just made room for it and recognized it and I went for my wide a great walk <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> and my mind did it, what it does <clears throat> and by the time <clears throat> I came down from the hill mountain uh, I could feel oh, I'm, at, I'm at the tail end of it now and, uh, and then by the time I got my car to drive on, it was gone. So that was kind of very nicely, you know, I thought, as opposed to getting self-conscious and, you know, and make this make it a problem. And, you know, if I'd made it a problem, and poor me, and, you know, why am I getting angry? Of all people, I shouldn't be angry. And I shouldn't admit it in front of all these people here. <clears throat> um, you know, I, then it could, it was, you know, it just stays and festers and grows and, you know, just, you know, becomes a... Then it becomes a problem, but... It wasn't a problem. I just had occasion to be angry. I was angry and recognized it, let it be there, and it self-liberated, it self-healed over time. So it's a powerful thing to just be able to see clearly. And it it's, uh, it's, uh, has some of the qualities of what Buddhist practice is aiming towards, which is liberation. Uh, to be liberated is to be able to live our lives and be present uh, without being in the grip of being, of our attachments, not being caught up in uh, everything that happens. We are constantly referring it back to ourselves, what I like, what I don't like, what I prefer, what I don't prefer, what it means about me, I'm right, I'm wrong, it's right, it's wrong, I, um, I like it, I don't like it. Um, you know, all this complicated stuff, re- re- reactions we have. But to be liberated is to be liberated from all the attachments that have to do with that and to be able to uh, not be in conflict with anything. It doesn't mean we give in to every impulse. I wasn't gonna give in to my anger today. If, uh, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't giving in to it, but I wasn't making it a problem either. And so to be liberated is to be free of all these you know, attachments, so we can just be present for our precious life in a very full and clear way. And so the practice of mindfulness in this way that it talks about here is very similar to that. And it's kind of like, almost like we're, we're beginning to practice liberation as we move the mind towards the possibility of being liberated uh, and practicing liberation, but just recognizing, just seeing, oh, this is what's going on. And this becomes particularly significant for the uh, beginning parts of this, where it says, um, uh, when their mind is affected by lust, one knows the mind is affected by lust. So occasionally there are human beings who have lust. Sometimes they use the word greed instead of lust. And and some people feel bad about it and feel it's wrong. And some people think it's the best thing going and they jump on board and all kinds of things. But but it can be a complicated relationship with the world of lust that people have. And here the instructions are when that happens, just know it just see it clearly for what it is and again I'm repeating myself but it's such an important point it's just see it without being for or against it without trying to fix it without suppressing it resisting it without condemning it without affirming it celebrating it justifying it defending it what's wrong with lust you know these Buddhists you know, they sh- they're always a party pooper and a little, lu- little, little bit of lust, you know, just this <laughs> spice in life and, you know, these Buddhists don't know what they're talking about. You know, so we get carried away in all these things and, and, and the, 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 the art here is, we're not condemning and we're not celebrating, we're not defending, we're not offending, we're just seeing it clearly. It's a phenomenal thing to do, to have that ability, just, just this, just this, so this is what it is. And, um, and then it says the same thing for a mind affected by hate. So if there's hate arises, ill will arises, that's one that it's much easier for some people to be critical of and feel like somehow it's wrong to have that and have a complicated relationship with it. And here what we're, ask, what we're being asked to do, the exercise is to have an uncomplicated relationship with it, meaning just see it. That's the extent of the relationship. Just recognize, oh, there's hate here. Boom. And I think for some people that can be very hard to do that. It's, it's a heavy thing to recognize hate in oneself. And then um, and then the, la- the, the, the third one is, when there's a mind of delusion, recognize it as de- uh, that it's delusion. Just see it. Oh, that's delusion. Some people think it's particularly hard to see delusion. That's the nature of delusion, that you're deluded, so you don't see that you're deluded. Um, but you can sometimes see it. You can clearly see. So, if you the advantage of mindfulness meditation or mindfulness, strong mindfulness, is you can watch the birth of a thought, a birth of an interpretation of something. And sometimes, when you can see the, the arise, first arising of it, um, before it's integrated into the structure of our mind state, the structure of how we think, um, you can oh look at that. That's not necessarily true. And uh, and you can see it. Oh, that's you know. You know, that's, I think that's delusion. And um, so, and then it goes on to say that um, <clears throat> when a mind does not have greed, when this mind state is non-greed, or non-lust here, this translation, then know it as a mind that has no lust, a mind state of the absence of lust. When there's the absence of hate, know that there's a mind state that's absence of hate. And when it's the absence of delusion, know that. And uh, some people say, well, you're know, we supposed to go around noticing these things whenever they're absent. Uh, that's a lot of work because, you know, chasing all the absences. But um, but mostly it's if if, if uh, lust and hatred and delusion has been there for a while and then it's gone, that's a particularly good time to see, wow, it's gone now. And and we feel what that's like. Oh, that's nice. But also in this ancient tradition, the negative form of these states implies a positive opposite. So the mind of, uh, that's not lustful is one that is content, one that is maybe um, peaceful, one that is maybe uh, generous. Uh, lust has a feeling of wanting, generosity is a giving, so it's kind of like the opposite. And then the uh, opposite of uh, a non-hate mind is a mind of love, of metta, And the mind of non-delusion is a mind of wisdom. So we're recognizing the presence of these other states and just seeing those being there. But it's actually very important that the way it's worded is in the negative, non-lust, non-hatred, non-delusion. And and I didn't realize this until, uh, you know, for many years, how important this little passage is. Um, Because I think uh, lust and hatred and delusion um, are relatively ordinary states, and they're not particularly you know, spiritual states. <clears throat> They're not lofty states. They're not like these dramatic, wonderful things that uh, meditation promises to experience, perhaps. And, um, and so it's kind of kind of like these Buddhists. They keep talking about these things, these downers and stuff. <clears throat> but it turns out that um, this is actually a very, very important <clears throat> uh, uh, insight uh, that's emphasized in, in Buddhism. And that is, uh, and the reason why it's very important is that definition of full liberation, the definition the definition of a state of mind that has tasted nirvana, nibbana, in, our, in the Pali language, nibbana, liberation, is defined as a mind that's fully eliminated, and they use kind of a powerful language sometimes, uh, destroyed, lust, hatred, and delusion. So the the absence of lust, hate, and lust, hasten, hate, and delusion is right in the middle, or right, right at the heart of the very goal of what this practice is about. And so it makes it very human, and understandable, but it just doesn't sound very lofty. You know, you kind of would like to have cosmic consciousness, or you know, you know, oneness with emptiness, or you know, there's all these wonderful things you can state, right? And um, and so it's kind of humble this idea. Just simple, you know, you go to your block party, and someone says, "Well, what are, you, what are you practicing?" I'm practicing the ending of greed, hate, and delusion, and that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> 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 you know, like they feel sorry, sorry for you. Really, that's what you're about. <laughs> but um, but the Buddhist analysis of this is that uh, these lust or greed, hatred and delusion are really, they're called the roots. They're very, they're very at the root of all the forces in our minds that cause harm, that bring us suffering. Uh, the suffering that we experience inside, the ways in which we harm ourselves, the ways in which we harm others, all have their source in, in Buddhist analysis in these three forces. And if they can be eradicated or or diminished, then uh, they're not there uh, to uh, to create more suffering. And in fact, so the total elimination of these is synonymous with the ending of suffering, the psychological suffering that Buddhism is trying to focus to be finished and end to it. And that is a beautiful thing, a profound thing, to be free, to, have, to be healed from this suffering world that we all kind of struggle with, the suffering minds that... You know that we want to be free of, and it's not a mild thing to do that. It brings a tremendous, tremendous happiness, well-being, and peace. It, and when you're free of suffering and have this profound peace that comes with it, it doesn't really matter anymore whether it's cosmic consciousness or oneness with emptiness or you know. That's kind of that's like you know, you'll take what comes. You know, if it's cosmic consciousness comes, that's fine. You know, but you know, so, you know. So, Rainy day, sunny day, it's all good. And um, and the other thing is that uh, because that this um, greed, hate, and delusion sits at the, at the source for all the ways in which we cause harm, these are actually very important ethical teachings in Buddhism. To be able to really see when the operation of lust and greed and all its variations uh, ill will and hatred are operating in all its variations and delusion and confusion and all its variations when we see, really see it operating really see it in ourselves in deep ways and subtle ways uh, this is one of the primary ways to start living an ethical life uh, without having you know without having to kind of follow ethical rules or commandments or something we really see in ourselves uh, the suffering that comes with these states and as we kind of no longer buy into them um, then uh, they 're not going to uh, be a catalyst for doing, uh, causing harm in the world, and intentional harm, um, unethical things. So, this ability to start tuning into these, uh, these, these three pairs—lust, the absence of lust; uh, uh, hatred, the absence of it; delusion, the absence of it—is uh, extremely important process in this, in this practice, in this tradition. Um, it just may be hard to kind of convey it. I don't know how well I've conveyed it today. The, the power, the value, the importance, the benefits that come from this kind of study. And, um, but then the practice goes deeper. And this is kind of like the beginning. Because as we get a sense of the difference between these two states, these two sides, it shows us that one side is better than the other. That it's actually much more enjoyable, pleasant, liberating, to not be caught in greed, greed hatred, and delusion and be involved in the others. And it begins to allow the mind, and we see that we don't, no longer, the mind no longer wants to keep reinforcing its tendency to get caught up in greed, hate, and delusion, these attachments, and it goes in the other direction where there's no preoccupation, no compulsion anymore. That allows the mind to begin to, a meditative mind, to settle and go deeper. And I started this talk by talking about how it's a journey. And so the journey of beginning to settle the mind and be able to go into deeper states of meditation. It begins, uh, something has to settle away. Some kind of way of being caught up in the world, caught up with our preoccupations, has to settle. And the brilliance of this, it says, take a look at where the mind is unsettled. Greed, hate, and delusion are states of agitation. Take a good look at it, see it for what it is. But just 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 see it, just know it, and that begins a process of settling, of calming. And then it allows the mind to kind of the meditative mind to settle in further. As it settles in further, uh, then it, uh, to be able to go further, it has to kind of make its way through uh, the mind's tendency to get um, to what's called sinking mind or getting agitated mind. And we get calm, and then we get over calm, and we sink and get kind of kind of stuck. Or we get started, the mind gets a little bit more agitated and start thinking too much, and we're not really settled anymore. Uh, it's also here they describe a process by which the mind becomes um, contracted and distracted. So sometimes the mind sinks into itself and gets tight and narrow. And sometimes it gets distracted as we spin off in thoughts. And there might not be much greed, hate, and delusion, but we're still kind of wandering off. The mind kind of follows the different chases its thoughts and stuff like that. And so uh, we start seeing that. We start seeing how the mind is distracted. Oh, that's a distracted mind. For meditators, uh, new meditators, that's often a time of frustration, often a time of like, you know, I'm not doing it right, I'm doing it wrong, this is too hard, and we get really bothered by this. But here the instructions are this very simple but I, think, I would say radical thing. When you're having tr- trouble with your meditation, just know it as trouble. The, the word isn't trouble here. It's, it's uh, when you find yourself uh, getting contracted, just see it as contracted. When you feel, feel, see you're distracted, the best of your ability, just see it that way. And that is very settling. That begins changing the inner atmosphere, the inner ecology of the mind to do that. And that allows the mind, but it's no longer troubled by what goes on in the mind, but just keeps seeing it, it allows this journey to continue, and the mind begins to settle further. So there, there are eight paired uh, instructions here. And so now we've done the first four pairs, so uh, lust and non-lust, hatred, non-hatred, delusion and non-delusion, contracted and scattered. And these are kind of the mind states that kind of belong to the ordinary world. As the mind goes further in, then we start uh, entering into some of the meditation states that this practice is kind of meant to move into. into. And um, the first one is um, um, one understands the expanded mind to be an exp- expanded mind. Uh, and one understands an unexpanded mind to be an unexpanded mind. The word "expanded" here is uh, g- the word is g- actually "great." In Zen, they talk about big mind. So you say, you understand know, understands a big mind is big mind, and a mind that's not big is not big. And what this refers to is as people get settled and concentrated in meditation, and as their preoccupations in in um, all their different worldly struggles begins to diminish. Um, the mind begins to feel larger. Awareness becomes more spacious. And um, there seems to be a lot of space in the mind for everything. Uh, a, a, a preoccupied mind caught up in all its concerns and everything uh, feels contracted, feels narrow, feels um, uh, claustrophobic at times, you know, just a little space in there. And so settle and relax and the mind. Awareness starts being broad and expansive. And one of the wonderful things when awareness starts, is no longer preoccupied and caught by things, it feels like the awareness gets so spacious that it can hold everything. No matter what the thought is, the sound is, the sensation of the body is, the pain is, the pleasure is, whatever the feeling, the emotion is, it can just, there's lots of room for it. And, uh, and, uh, and we have, we, we're, we're like so big in a sense that we don't have, we don't have to get troubled by anything. And so this ex- feeling this expansiveness of the mind is one of the things that happens as the mind gets more settled and here it's a and it's a natural process as this this recognition practice deepens and deepens just recognize just see just see this is what's happening this is what's happening and then um and then it goes further the journey um, uh, one understands and this is a kind of unusual language um A surpassed mind, a surpassable mind, as a surpassable mind, and an unsurpassable mind as an unsurpassable mind. So what this means is that as meditation deepens, the mind state becomes more settled and more concentrated. Uh, There, um, one can recognize at some point, you know, the mind can get even calmer, or more pristine, or more clear. And, and um, so the idea that it can, there's, there's further we can go means that you can surpass the state that you've re- attained. So you reach one state of concentration and you say, well, that's is good, but actually I can feel that I can actually get more f- focused, even more, more settled. And, uh, and you, sometimes you can almost feel like there's a path forward or there's a vision of, yeah, uh, there's still a little bit more agitation here that can settle and, and, and and at some point the mind gets so stes, uh, steady so subtle and so concentrated that um you it, it realize it's not going to be surpassed anymore i've re- i kind of reached kind of a a pretty high stable steady place of concentration and stillness clarity and uh, and you know this is unsurpassable this is good now this is really good then it goes on to say uh one understands a a, um, a collected mind or a steadied mind as a steadied mind, and an unsteadied mind as an unsteadied mind. Uh, in, this, in this trans, I, I, I didn't re- read, actually read what it says here, because here it says a concentrated mind. But the Pali for this word is not samadhi, it's samahita. And uh, I think it refers to, I mean, something that's been placed or steadied well. And I think what's being referred to here in this journey of deepening, deepening practice, at some point the concentration is so deep and steady that the mind is uh, poised for a kind of deeper letting go. Uh, And this word semahita apparently is related to the word for kindle, uh, like a kindle for a fire. And uh, and it's a mind that is so steadied or so uh, readied for a spark to happen the spark of liberation and so you can sometimes you can really get deep enough in meditation you feel oh you know it's just like you feel the readiness of something's going to happen here something's going to release or let go and the idea is not to get excited not to be for or against it but just understand that oh the mind this is how the mind is this is how the mind is and then uh, the end of this journey, uh, this the, the eighth of these pairs, um, one understands a liberated mind as a liberated mind and an unliberated mind as an unliberated mind. So this reinforces the idea that what I just read before was the what is the state just before being liberated, and then uh, and then th- there's this liberation that happens, this freedom, this letting go, uh, and it's a. Uh, You know, it's it's very hard for us to see the, you know, into the black box of our suffering, of our stress, of our distress, dismay, and depression, and all kinds of things we have. It can be hard to get. It's kind of sometimes like mysterious sometimes why we feel these ways that we do. And um, and uh, but this process of going deeper and deeper and more and more settled lets us kind of begin seeing or touching some of the deeper operating principles, deeper places of uh, attachments or holding, that's the genesis of these more complicated um, emotions that we might be feeling. And so, that, so to go, get quieter and stiller and just see and just see and just see and see and see. Um, as we just see, do this recognizing, just under, see this is what's going on, this is what's going on. Whenever we're doing it that simple, uh, we're not stirring the pot, we're not, you know. They say that uh, if you leave a muddy water alone, it settles and becomes clear. But if you keep stirring it up, it stays muddy. So this idea of just seeing, oh, that's a greedy mind. That's a hateful mind. That's a contracted mind. That's a expanded mind. Uh, the seeing is kind of just letting the, the water alone so it can keep settling. But if we're for and against it, judging it, criticizing it, then we're stirring the mud. And so, um, so this process of uh, doing this just recognition practice allows the mud to settle. The mind gets clearer and more peaceful. And then at some point, we go through these, kind of this journey of the mind deeper and deeper and deeper until something at the depth of it lets go. And the mind has to be prepared for that letting go. It has to be soft and ready and malleable and all this and, uh, and steadied. And that's the second to last stage to really come to that. And then uh, we, we don't liberate ourselves. It's not something we do. It's something the mind does on its own when the conditions are there. And again, this that's why it's so important, again, to do this just simple recognition, to see it, because we want to get out of the way and uh, and not, you know, complicate it and let the mind do its own thing, the self-liberating uh, uh, capacity of the mind. And um, so a couple of things I want to reinforce that I said... Uh, I think this is a very important exercise. Uh, It starts uh, uh, helping us to see clearly some of the deeper operating principles of the mind about how it operates around greed, hate, and delusion, and the opposite. It's a a training in learning to get out of the way while we clearly recognize what's there. And uh, it's a hugely important part of vipassana practice, is learning that ability just to see and leave what's there alone. I think of that as a kind of form of respect. We respect what's ever there and we just get, get out of the way, just see it, just see it. It's not easy to do. It's a training to do it, to learn how to do it and get out of the way and just see. But to get the hang of it, it's like it's beautiful. It's just like, wow, it's, you know, they should teach this in schools. And um, the, um, and then that it's, a, it's not a static process, but uh, it's kind of, as we give room for the mind to do its thing, as we settle, uh, it settles more and it opens up in t- particular ways. And I like to think of it, the mind as on a journey. And we're allowing that journey to unfold. And that journey at some point begins to be, clearly feels like a journey f- to liberation. As the mind gets expansive, as the mind gets more and more concentrated, as the mind gets ripe, uh, kind of ripe in this kind of steadied space, and then lets go of itself. So, um, so this speaks to something about mindfulness. I mean, uh, it's fairly common in even secular forms of mindfulness to emphasize that mindfulness is non-reactive awareness, non-reactive attention to things, um, and, um, and which is kind of what they're saying here in this text. But what this text is kind of pointing to is a deeper potential of doing that. And, um, <clears throat> and it has this a, a, a deep potential of liberation and freedom. Um, if we allow the process, if we give enough time and dedication and devotion to this process and really give ourselves over to allowing this natural process to move and develop. <clears throat> so that's a third foundation of mindfulness. <clears throat> and um, next week we'll do the fourth foundation, we'll begin the fourth foundation And uh, here it gets even more interesting because now we don't just look at the mind states, but we also start looking at um, uh, some of the particular operating systems in the mind and how these operating systems also kind of can either keep us um, bound in suffering or be liberating. So we have about, uh, I don't know, five minutes or something. Um, If anyone would like to ask any questions for clarification about what I've said and If you could wait for the mic, then
1: thank you for the insight. Um, So, the question I wanted to ask is we discussed several. Mediums or tools that we can be mindful of. Um, talk about breathe, thoughts, um, state of mind, sensations. Is there one specific tool that you think fits everybody? Like one specific tool, like medium, like. Oh, like a technique
0: yeah. that works no, for everyone?
1: Yeah, uh, not a technique, but. A medium that would be applicable to everyone or is it combination me, you mean of all me
0: by, by medium you mean uh, one thing to focus on and pay attention to yeah one object of attention yep
1: is is there one that one medium that you know fits everybody or
0: uh, well what, uh, it's, it's a nice question I, I'm actually not so sure of how to answer the question I can different things are going through my mind Um and so um, and um, I and I could say what I'm about to say in a flip way, but uh, I mean it seriously, so I'll try to be unflip. Um, and, and that is that um, maybe what works for most people is, uh, and it's one, one, one of the ways of doing vipassana practice is um, uh, the, right, the right object for attention is whatever is in front of you.
1: That is a very abstract answer, but I'll take it. <laughs>
0: what, what, what I'm, and it's, I'm meant to be opposite of abstract, and that is that uh, you pay attention to whatever is salient in the moment, whatever is the most prominent, compelling experience of the moment.
1: Is that true for, uh, you know, for every moment, or just when you're actually meditating? Like, is, is the tool different when you're...
0: The, the, the difference between meditation and everyday life is kind of arbitrary. Uh, so it's a good, I found it a very good principle to bring my attention, if I'm, if, if, if I'm gonna focus my attention, to bring it to the experience which is most compelling at the moment. And, um, but then we have to use our wisdom and discernment to know sometimes that's not what's needed. You know, I, I really wanna be cooking dinner, I'm really here to cook dinner and just me and dinner, that's what's happening. But the baby's crying. What should I do? Is it the dinner or the baby? And um, you know, so so I might be wanting to do the dinner. I might want to do you know you know something else besides the baby, but the baby's crying, you know, in distress. So 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 um, so sometimes sometimes it takes some judgment to know where our attention should be and what's useful. But I think as a general, especially in meditation, you asked about meditation, daily life, in in meditation. I think um, uh, that's a wonderful laboratory to just practice. One way of practicing mindfulness, Vipassana, is just whatever is the most compelling experience of the moment. Just connect to that, see that. And that'll unfold and change over time. And to keep it that simple. And then maybe outside you have to decide, you know, use your wisdom a little bit. So it's a good question, and we're just about out of time. But uh, there must be something behind the question for you. you it must be something you're thinking about or... Something that uh, your point you want to make, or something. So I'm curious if you want to say a little bit what's behind your question.
1: Um, so I was just curious if you know I've heard a little about different strands of Buddhism, like different um, techniques, that different interpretations. I was curious if what we practice here in Insight Meditation Center falls under one of those branches, but didn't want to go into. Yeah, there's many, many.
0: Not only is there many branches of meditation in Buddhism, there's also many branches of insight meditation, and um, and you know, um, I think I like to I like to prefer to think they're all good, and uh, they're just different uh, different avenues for to reach the same goal. So, and different people for different people, um, different techniques of vipassana, different approaches are useful. Some people uh, prefer very body based practices. Some people really prefer just the breathing. Some people prefer this mind state. Uh, this is, works really well for some people and it make, makes it very uncomplicated. Some people um, you know, there's a, there's a, some people like to have a very formalized, structured way of doing it. They do these body scans that just go through the body over and over again. Some people like to have it unstructured. And, and um, different minds prefer different ways, and so there's not. I don't think there's one shoe fits all people, and and so uh, and and also for me, what I've learned over my many years of doing this is that uh, I've learned many ways of doing this. And when I sit down to meditate, um, I do the one that's most appropriate given what's happening. When it's rainy, I put on, raining. I put on a raincoat. Even when it's hot, I put on shorts. You know, so, you know, it's the same thing with my meditate. When I meditate and my mind is agitated, I do one thing, my mind is peaceful, it's nothing else. And and so I just do whatever seems appropriate to respond to the circumstance of the time. Okay, so um, maybe you'll look at your mind states and uh, enjoy them. Thank you.